Hey everyone, it's Monica Manny. As 2023 comes to a close, I wanted to take a moment and say thanks for all the support you all have given us throughout the year. It has truly been a joy to share so many wonderful conversations about the world of data science, and we're grateful that you've joined us on this journey. So on behalf of everyone here at the School of Data Science, thank you, and we'll see you next year. And with that, here is a rebroadcast of one of our favorite episodes on the topic of sports analytics, featuring Don Brown, Natalie Kupperman, and Stephen Beck. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, uh, hello. I'm Don Brown. I'm the Senior Associate Dean for Research in the School of Data Science. I'm also the co-director of the Institute for Translational Health in uh, uh, Virginia. And I will, and a, a faculty member in the School of Data Science and in the School of Engineering. And I'll uh, kick it over to Natalie. Uh, my name is Natalie Kupperman. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Data Science. All right. Uh, my name is Steve Beck. I'm an associate professor of data science here at UVA. Okay. And I guess to kick things off, we'll just go around and talk a little bit about research that we've been doing that's related to, uh, to sports and sports analytics. For me, it's been fairly recent. I've done a lot of work in the past in areas, in, including time series analysis. And recently, I've been looking at a lot of data that's coming out of uh, time series from sports, particularly around exercise testing and things like that using these uh, methods in deep learning. Um, how about you, Natalie? Uh, so my research started on the sports medicine side. I'm trained as an athletic trainer. That's most of my education. Uh, that pivoted a little bit when I learned about the sensors that sports teams were using and how we could use those sensors to start to understand uh, injury risk on the field. Uh, so then when I was working on my PhD, I was specifically working on how do we take all of that sensor data and other data that we collect on the medical side and try to put it together to reduce injury risk. And so I'm continuing that on and also broadening my scope a bit in the sports analytics realm. No, oh, that's great. Thanks. And Steve? So my research is about shapes. Um, I'm interested in analyzing geometric data. And then to my perspective, human body is uh, such an interesting geometric objects. So um, my PhD research actually started um, you know, with this concept of modeling human body shapes in a data-driven way so that you know, we can have like a computational model of people and then we do an, you know, uh, analyze uh, a, a variety of different aspects of people uh, using those computer models. So that's kind of how, how all this uh, gets started. And then um, sports analytics, um, I think, is kind of a general connection to my uh, original research because, you know, it is related to, you know, human body and how they move and, you know, things like that. So uh, I use the tools of uh, computer, computer vision, computational geometry, and machine learning to understand and analyze, um, you know, how people move uh, from the perspective of, you know, their geometrical change of posture and the body shape, you know, those kind of things. That's great. You know, uh, when people think about sports analytics, they naturally gravitate to Moneyball yeah. and that uh, and those ideas. And uh, I think it's it's natural because that uh, obviously was a, a cool book and a, a cool movie and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it, it, in listening to you, it seems like you're both doing things that are quite different from that, as am I. So uh, maybe Natalie, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of sports analytics as you've seen it and uh, and how? Uh, you're involved in different aspects of it? Yeah. Um, I like to tell people that we've been interested in athletes since the Greeks in the Olympics. The Greeks studied their athletes to make them better, better performers. And then uh, in recent years, in modern times, since the 
you know, 70s, 80s, we've started to collect more data on our athletes. Um, stats have gotten better. Stats started to become more publicly available, which is where Moneyball came from. Moneyball was looking through just homes and homes of stats and amalgamating that data and creating models. Um, since then, we've gotten even more technology, including sensor technology. We we store our data better from the medical side to the stats side. We have next-gen stats. Um, so where I think things are really going now is not just how do we make the stats better and the game outcomes better. We're now looking at individual athletes and how do we make them healthier and better performers on the field, whether they're in high school, college, or professional level. And that's where some of the exercise testing comes in. That's where the sports medicine comes in. Uh, there's more cameras in, in on fields and on pitches, which is where Steve's research um, is really coming into play on a large scale. Um, so some of the problems now are, how do we pull this data together? Some of it is, how do we do this at scale? Uh, and then also, I think, how do we think about an individual athlete and also how do we think about a whole team uh, and not just the outcome of the game or who's the best player out there. Um, it's really looking at these dynamical systems of sports. Yeah, that's great. And Steve, what do you think about uh, the evolution of sports analytics? So I think uh, Natalie summarized um, things pretty well. So I can only talk about from the perspective of computer vision. Um, computer vision has been around for a while uh, in sports industry. Uh, they've been used to, you know, produce all this cool like replays and you know analysis result uh, in the TV broadcast and things like that. But recently, uh, there's been a huge progress with all this deep learning and artificial intelligence stuff, where computers now have this cognitive capacity to, you know, uh, to tell. Um, you know where their uh, where people's major body joints are located at each different video frames, and then from there we can generate um, you know a, a huge quantity of uh, motion data of the players during the game during practice. Uh, all of this creates this uh, very exciting uh, opportunity um, as of today, where you know you can um, you know collect all this data and then. Uh, distill some, you know, interesting knowledge about, you know, how athletes, um, you know, perform and get injured and, you know, things like that. So uh, that's kind of, you know, all this, um, you know, where all this exciting uh, new trend is going towards, um, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's really where, like, mine and Steve's fields are colliding is on the fact that from video analysis not using markers, so there's not markers. And I think people who might be listening who are um, more know about things like Vicon where we use markers uh, to look at motion analysis, <clears throat> how much, how time intense that, that is and how you only get maybe 10 steps if you wanna watch someone run of their motion where now we can get an entire game. And the fact that we can are to the point where they can get major joint angles is going to revolutionize how we look at injury in these sporting contexts. I don't think I can emphasize that enough to people that that is that's a huge deal in our world. Can you say a little bit more about this? I mean, how is it possible to get these joint angles, uh, particularly in a game uh, that has uh, you know 22 players on a field just to pick one? Uh, 
um, game. Right. Um, the traditional motion capture systems, um, because computers were, you know, back in the days were not that smart to be able to understand uh, where uh, in the image or video, um, you know, people's body joints are located. Um, people had to place markers, uh, visual markers on the, uh, physically on the, you know, body of the, you know, uh, of the athletes. And then, you know, those markers are, um, th those markers basically pr provide a visual cue for the computer systems to analyze and guess uh, where the body joints are located and then how the, the bones move, you know, as the uh, athletes, you know, perform certain things. But those markers are, um, if you think about it, quite burdensome uh, because each time you want to uh, scan the movement, you have to physically place the markers uh, on the body of the subject. And then they that takes a lot of time because you have to place the markers in a uh, very meticulous way. And then there are like hundreds of markers that has to be attached to the subject, uh, which is super time consuming and uh, tedious. But nowadays with uh, the advances of data science in general, uh, what computers now able to do is to analyze all the pixels in the videos and images and then um, make a very good estimate of where those body joints are located. And then the fact that you are able to tell the body joints without any markers means that you can reconstruct the 3D uh, body configuration of the people from videos and images. That means, you know, uh, you don't really need any expensive motion capture system. You don't need to uh, spend your time on placing markers and, you know, things like that. But you can use some, you know, uh, plain, you know, video cameras, like your smartphone even, uh, cameras. And then you can collect the motion, you, you can record the videos of people doing of various things, and then eventually run this, you know, machine learning algorithms to tell where the body joints are located. And then, you know, from there you can, you know, uh, compute the 3D joint angles, uh, the joint velocities, and, you know, things like that, which all can become really useful information for people like Natalie to understand and analyze the, uh, people's movement. Yeah, and also be able to capture that with multiple people. Often when we use the markered systems, we have to be in a lab environment that doesn't go onto a field or a pitch. So not only do we get the individual, we also get the individual in the context of the team and the opponent. Um, which then gets into a little bit more of the competition uses for uh, computer vision. So important. let's talk a little bit more about that. In order to capture, again, for a, for a large game with a lot of players on it, uh, you're going to need multiple cameras at multiple angles. Mm -hmm. uh, do you do integration of those data in order to make sure you've got the right player at the right spot across those cameras? Or how do you put that together? How do you get uh, one, uh, one picture? Because obviously, depending on where the camera is, uh, the player is going to be blocked. They're only going to be seen by certain other cameras, and you're going to have to look for those correct angles and it it seems like it'd be a tedious thing obviously the computer uh, the algorithms that we built will allow us to go through that very rapidly but still it's a it's an issue in how to integrate those uh, those different perspectives from the different cameras so can you talk a little about how that's done yeah that's a great question don um there are various different recipes so to speak um, in terms of how we, you know, set up the cameras and then uh, how 
to you know point those those cameras. Um, <clears throat> I think the typical setup is there are multitude of cameras uh, installed in a stadium from various different angles. I think uh, people prefer to be more uh, you know abundant uh, as opposed to you know like finding the optimal number of cameras, which is um, you know because like exactly because of the the reason that you you, you just talk about like in uh, in a lot of team sports um, you know specifically there are a lot of collisions physical contacts and you know things like that and then from computer vision perspective uh, that's kind of a nightmare because like you know there's a player uh, on an image and then on top of the player there's another player you know obstructing the view and you know like for example football is is kind of like the most challenging problem I would argue and then that's because you know like all the players uh, during the play kind of you know in a very close physical contact and then you know that poses a lot of challenges in terms of finding the right view of you know, where the important event has happened. So right now, I think the current um, paradigm is to just place as many cameras as possible. Uh, and then, um, you know, using the technology called uh, camera calibration, which is the process of finding uh, the parameters of how the cameras are set up. So basically, you know, where the cameras are oriented, uh, where the cameras are located in the 3D space, uh, what are the what are their uh, you know focal length, and you know those kind of things uh, can be pre-computed. And then once you have the pre-computed set of camera parameters, what you can do is to run uh, what is called a pose estimation algorithm, uh, which is essentially a machine learning algorithm to find the, uh, the major body joint locations in the videos. And then uh, those two-dimensional informations then gets reconstructed by using the camera calibration matrices. Uh, and then eventually you can reconstruct the 3D uh, you know, view of, um, you know, uh, the players on the field or the, in the practice uh, areas and, you know, things like that. Yeah. So uh, it seems to me, as you say, football is the most, uh, got to be one of the most challenging ones. Uh, and I'm, I'm imagining, for instance, baseball and cricket would be among the least challenging. But correct me if I'm wrong in this. And maybe hockey and uh, and basketball in between because of the speed of motion uh, of their, uh, there's a lot of contact in those, but they, and they're very, very fast. Um, talk a little bit about the kinds of sports that this has been used for and the ones that you think are particularly successful and the ones for which we've got some work to do. So uh, from the things that I know, I think baseball was the, the sports where all this, you know, computer vision application um, has started. So. Baseball obviously is a sport that has, I think, the, the one of the least amount of contacts uh, between players. And then, you know, if you think about it, like all the players are sort of, you know, distributed on the field, and then they're kind of far apart from each other. So, from computer vision perspective, it's much easier problem compared to, you know, high contact sports like football. So. Um, I think uh, about like a decade ago, um, there were people who are developing an app, uh, basically where you can point a camera uh, towards a pitcher, 
And then uh, the algorithm behind the camera basically analyze uh, all the body movement of the pitcher so that they can calculate the, you know, the release velocity of the ball and, you know, how their joints are, you know, um, how, how their joints move when they throw the ball uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, but now uh, with the events of computer vision technology, I think um, we are gradually tackle and go into more complicated problems like football. Uh, and then one of the things that, you know, enables this kind of, um, you know, one of the things that it allows us to solve this kind of, you know, high challenging, highly challenging situation um, is because of the fact that now machine learning algorithms can do so much more complicated things than just recognizing pixels. It can actually make a pretty reasonable guess in case there's an occlusion, for example. So when uh, the player posture is hidden uh, because of some occlusion, nowadays what machine learning algorithms can do is to make a reasonable guess from the information that's available. Uh, things like uh, what happened uh, before and after the current frame, you can make a, you, you can sort of interpolate their uh, body movement from those adjacent frames. Or, you know, in case there are multiple camera views, you can combine all this information to uh, sort of reconstruct and make a reasonable guess in terms of what happened in that, you know, occluded scene, uh, that sort of things. I think it's important to note, too, that a lot of the computer vision first came up for uh, competition and rules sake. Uh, we saw uh, Hawkeye being used in tennis first at the U.S. Open um, to corroborate the line judging. Um, and that was really revolutionary in the sport of tennis. Um, we've seen some of it in baseball, too, with the rules, with um, umping calls. Um, and now we're going to see it in the World Cup with FIFA. They are instituting computer vision to do... Uh, their offsides call. Um, and what I think is really interesting there is that as of now, and this could change once all the players arrive for the World Cup, is that the the ball itself is going to be censored for those offsides calls. Um, and so I think that it's important to know that this stuff came a lot from competition and all the debates we have around line calls and safe or out or um, offsides and in soccer or in hockey, that's a big deal too, offsides, um, and a tough one to make when the game is moving so quickly. Uh, and because all of those cameras were put into stadiums, then scientists like Steve were able to go in and say, hey, we can even do better. And we can actually look at these athletes from a, in a very uh, microscopic way at, the, at their joint angles. Um, and so I think this, depending on kind of where your interest in sports is, there's going to be a there's a lot going on in both sides, competition and on health. Um, I'm really looking forward. I'm not the world's biggest soccer or football fan. I guess if we're gonna if we're calling uh, the World Cup, we should probably call it a uh, football, a PISA. Everyone else in the world besides Americans on that term. Um, then uh, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see how the fans react to having offsides called at like a millimeter. And does that really go to the spirit of the game? So I think those conversations are are so interesting from how the game is played to just the water cooler talk the next day after the game is is really interesting. That being said, because all those cameras will be 
installed in all the World Cup stadiums that they're playing at in December, all of their joint angles and all of that injury, possible injury information or health information will also be available um, to at least FIFA, <laughs> um, maybe researchers eventually. Well, let's, let's uh, explore that for just a second. Yeah. It's not just uh, joint and health information from the standpoint of uh, injury prevention and things like that, but mm -hmm. you can actually make inferences about the performance of the athlete, can't you? Uh, based upon all those, uh, the information you're getting from the, so talk to, talk to me a little bit about, uh, I'll say the privacy and ethical issues for the athlete, because now you, you can actually judge performance. You can say something about uh, how the athlete is done in, in various situations, can't you, with this technology? Yeah, um, I think it's easiest to speak about this at the professional level, uh, mostly because all of the data is brokered in their um, collective bargaining agreements. Um, so at the professional level, their data is very secure. Um, and uh, so if we're using um, the MLS, if we'll stay on the soccer example, the MLS might be collecting data, um, but if the MLS is collecting it, then only um, the MLS has access to it. The, the data that the teams collect, the teams have access to. Um, and then I know in the in the NFL, they're collecting and they're doing a lot of work with injuries. Um, and not even the NFL has access to that data. Only their research teams can look at the data from the injury levels. So there's a lot of levels of protection, and I'm just grazing the surface on all these technical technical <clears throat> nuances of these contracts. Um, but I will say I do feel like most professional sports in the U.S. have done a good job, or the collective bargaining agreements, I should say, have done a good job on brokering how that data is secured. I think as we move down levels where there isn't that interface between um, the people who are paying for the technology and collecting the technology and the people that that data is being collected on, where there's not an interface there to have collective bargaining agreements, um, that's going to vary from institution to institution on how that data is collected and secured and possibly used, um, which we could probably do a whole podcast on in general. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure Steve has something to add to that too. Yeah, adding on to the, the data security issue, um, another thing I want to mention is um, AI sort of being used in the decision-making process. I, I'm pretty sure you watched the movie called Minority Report. Mm -hmm. um, the spoiler alert, um, <clears throat> what that movie uh, describes is a future where you know, there's an artificial intelligence which can predict the crime so that, you know, even before the crime is committed, um, the AI can tell who's going to commit a crime, when and where, so that, you know, the, what the movie is uh, telling us is this uh, kind of a dystopian future of, you know, people get arrested uh, even before committing a crime. Um, so I don't know if this... Um, you know, analogy is appropriate, but I'm sort of, you know, uh, also concerned about this possibility of AI being used in a decision-making process that is not, you know, totally fair to the, to the players, uh, if you will. So what I'm trying to say here is, um, you know, like AI algorithms are never perfect. Uh, they are not a hundred percent accurate, but people tend to have this, 
you know, biased perception on data science and, you know, all this AI technology where, oh, data's, data says X, and then that must be true. You know, that, that's sort of a bias. And then I think uh, one thing that uh, the data science community uh, will need to talk about is, you know, how does, for example, injury prediction data gets used in the decision-making process or the performance prediction data gets used in the uh, decision-making process, given that those prediction algorithms are not uh, 100% accurate, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of poses a you know very interesting uh, ethical dilemma that uh, I think all this data science community has yeah. to tackle. And on the prediction side, I know when I talk to people about injury prediction, because if I go in and talk to coaches and I'm like, how would we, how, uh, if we could solve any problem for you, what's the problem you want to solve? They're like, we want to predict injury. And I, I get that. I would love to also be able to know that next day an athlete's going to be injured so we can somehow help them to not get injured. However, that's not possible. We can't predict all injury in sport. And so I always try to temper my words. And I, that's why I try to use words more like injury risk mitigation. So what if we think that someone is trending towards a possible injury. What are steps we can take beforehand to either change their workload, change their equipment, something that something like that that doesn't inhibit their performance or their chances of being on the field, but can help keep them healthier for whatever injury they're we think they're headed towards. And you guys have raised two very interesting points at least, and I want to come back to the the prediction, particularly of the. Uh, I'll say the strategy and tactics in, in, a, in a sport, but let's, let's follow up, Natalie, with this idea of the, the injury prediction. It seems to me that what you need for injury prediction is not just what's on the field. You need all the stuff before the game. In other words, yeah. and I know that, uh, and we haven't talked, we've, we've talked a lot about cameras, mm -hmm. but basically the athletes are censored up. Is, they and, are you, censored and you're talking up. about the censoring on the ball, the puck is, you know, everything is getting censored, and yeah. uh, they're, they're really censored up in the sense that you're, you're measuring what heart rate? Um, uh, heart rate's actually quite challenging. Um, okay. We get we get a lot so of we get a lot of So what are we what are we measuring um, on the? Uh, so they um, a lot of sports will wear um, a sensor either on their back in between their shoulder blades, or um, it, there's ones that also fit kind of in the waistband of their athletic shorts or pants. Um, and those sensors have a 3D accelerometer, gyroscope, and magnetometer. Um, so we're getting directional movement, we're getting um, impact motion, um, we're getting accelerations, decelerations. If they're playing outside, those sensors also pick up GPS. Yes. So it's using the satellites in the sky and um, it's being captured at a lower rate and so the accuracy isn't the best, but it does give us a fairly good picture of at least how many miles did they run, how many times did they um, accelerate and at what intensity did they accelerate or decelerate. Um, deceleration tends to be more of a, a concern when we think about injury. Um, so we have all of that. I do think one of our next um, and probably people are working on this now and we'll probably work on it here at Virginia at some point, is um, understanding how the camera data and the sensor data interact with each other and how those um, are similar or how they are different. Uh, because the camera systems are very expensive and our athletes typically don't practice and compete in the same places, um, but their sensors are always with them. So um, if the camera data is giving us this really amazing information to work with, um, how can we you know, amalgamate that with the sensor data so that our sensor data becomes even better? Because the sensor data can be extremely noisy. However, it's leaps and bounds over 
guesstimating how many miles they ran uh, in practice. Um, so that's one of them. Some teams do use heart rate. It's just very noisy and there's a lot of dropout. Um, so the teams I work with, I tend to stay away from looking at heart rate too much. Um, and I have not found a lot of uses for it. Most athletes that we study um, are very healthy and their heart rates don't really give us that much to, to go off of, frankly. Yeah, I guess it, um, the, the data integration, I think, is, uh, you know, that's been an area of research for me for a long time mm -hmm. across a bunch of domains. That clearly seems to me to be another dimension of where we can go because it's not just video, it's, it's all the other sensors that are available. But I guess I want to go back to the question I was asking you earlier about the injuries. Yeah. It seems to me that it, to predict an injury, don't you need to monitor them b before they're playing the game? In other words, during the period of time that they're not, uh, you know, when they're when they're working out. I mean, I I know. I in fact, ironically, I was speaking to a, uh, a former Penn Stater who went on to play in the NFL. He has two Super Bowl rings, and I just happened to talk to him this weekend, and he was talking to me about a number of these issues. Uh, but he was saying that, frankly, at Penn State, and you know, I don't know if he's, uh, he said that they have, without a doubt, in his mind, the toughest workout, that the workout is way tougher than the game, and that uh, they, they played all these, said so Joe Paterno was, was uh, fanatic about uh, you know, getting people to really hit hard during uh, uh, workouts. And so, uh, and, and training sessions. So I'm, I'm wondering, yeah. monitoring those workouts and training sessions, it seems to me, is, is at least as important for or injury prevention as the game itself. 100%. And we know from epidemiology research that more injuries happen in practice for multiple reasons. There's more people participating in practice, so there's just more chances for injury. Oftentimes, practices are longer than games, so our exposure is longer. Um, so yes, we definitely need to be looking at practices uh, and that and that they always have the sensors on during practice so we can look at their we use this term to kind of it's an all-encompassing term called the workload so we can look at their workload leading up to games and how their workload trends over weeks and within a week and compared to their teammates and for themselves um, and so I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with tapering uh, in sports, we tend to have season-long tapers. We also have weekly tapers, and the taper depends on what part of the season you're in. So we can look at those trends. Um, it's also really important that we not only look at the team practices, but many athletes will do individual work. Oftentimes, that individual work is one-on-one, -on -one, and so it can be more intense, as in they're getting more motion within a shorter amount of time. Um, that intensity can lead to lead us to believe that certain types of uh, tendon injuries might be more probable or coming up. Um, and so making sure that the, we're monitoring them in those individual sessions also is really important. And then putting that whole picture together. Um, when we talk about college athletes, too, we also have to think about their uh, and this is any athlete, but I think about ath college athletes the most, I suppose, is um, where we are in the academic year, what's going on outside of sport that could be adding stress that could also um, lead to injury. We know that uh, fatigue, which when people are stressed or anxious, they that pe some people tend to get less sleep. And how does that fatigue play into injuries? Um, and I will say the injuries that we're probably the best at mitigating with this technology are overuse injuries. Um, I don't think we'll get to the point where I can tell you four days ahead that someone's probably going to break their finger 
in the next game. There are just injuries that happen because sports happen in injuries. Um, when I think with this technology, I'm really thinking um, about a lot of lower extremity or low back pain type injuries, the tendon injuries, the tendonitis, the Achilles tendonitis, stress fractures, um, those type of injuries that we can maybe modify things like workload or add in different recovery modalities or rehab therapies to help them mitigate that if we're seeing trends in their data. Yeah, this is a great uh, segue back to what I was asking about the heart rate. It's actually not the heart rate itself, it's heart rate variability. Yes. And heart rate variability is very predictive. Of, uh, heart rate variability is phenomenal. It's very yeah. hard to get during a game. Right. Um, but how, before the ahead. games. Before is, the yeah. games we can. So there, um, for a while, teams were using something called Omega Wave um, to get HRV. Uh, it tends to be a little obtrusive, and it's hard to get people in that relaxed state. Um, now we're seeing more and more teams use the Aura Ring. And so the Aura Ring athletes can wear all the time or just at night, and their heart rate variability um, is very is very good. Um, and so I'm really excited to see what we can do with that and look at that. And that's something we're exploring here at UVA. Yeah, just another little side note on what we're talking about. Yeah. For, for those who are listening, this heart rate variability is actually a good thing for just a, a normal person, not an elite athlete to use. And it's surprising. I know it, uh, people are always surprised when, when we talk about this to know that heart rate variability is good when it's high. That's a, that's a healthy indicator. Low variability is bad. So it's yeah. like a lot of things in, frankly, physiology, that the, the greater the variability, the better it is. It's a good thing. What about, uh, what about you, Steve? Have you used uh, uh, computer vision around these training kinds of things, or has it all been on the games themselves? Uh, no, I think uh, training is um, particularly something that, um, you know, computer vision is uh, most frequently used um, at the current stage. Because, you know, like what Natalie said, um, you know, computer vision is particularly good at detecting those overuse injuries and, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, those unfortunate accidents that happens in the field, I mean, those are something that we cannot really predict. But what we can predict are the things that are like, um, you know, there's a repetitive pattern of, um, you know, shoulder exposed to uh, some high amount of or abnormal amount of deceleration or, you know, those kind of things is what we can capture and measure. So uh, a lot of teams and, you know, uh, organizations actually use computer vision to monitor uh, their you know, practice sessions so that they can accumulate the data of like, you know, what kind of movement patterns are repeatedly, uh, you know, emerge uh, during the practice for each different player is, is kind of the, uh, the use case scenario. Uh, people also use computer vision system for um, sort of a screening test. So like, what is your range of motion? Like how far you can bend your uh, shoulder, your elbow, you know, those kind of things. And then with the, the modern, you know, computer vision based motion capture systems, you can kind of automate that process so that it becomes easier to collect those data, meaning that you can more precisely monitor the people with a more frequent measurement. Uh, so I, I would say those are the, the use cases of computer vision and training. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to go back to the uh, uh, to your minority report example and this idea of prediction, mm -hmm. but particularly around tactics and I'll say in the game. But I so I'd say about I'm trying to think now. It must have been at least four years ago. I had an undergraduate who went to work for a, a summer for a professional 
a baseball team. And in, in that, he, he worked a, uh, uh, he built a system that was pretty cool. It basically gave them a way to predict how to uh, set up their, uh, their defense, their infield defense, so where the, the second baseman and the shortstop position themselves based upon the current pitcher and the current batter. So as soon as the batter came up, they would adjust. And it was looking just at the data and, 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 the, and the way in which this particular pitcher and this particular batter were likely to, uh, to interact so that the batter would hit in a certain direction. And the infield defense was then adjusted accordingly. And it turned out that worked real well uh, for that team. But I'd like, uh, I guess, you know, if that's four years ago, now the state of the art is obviously much better. Can you talk a little bit about the tactical side of things? So in other words, let's just play out the American football analogy. You're, 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 you're down, you've got, uh, let's say you're third down and uh, four or something, and you're facing a certain uh, uh, team. Can you uh, see a point where we can uh, run a predictive set of models against that situation and give a, uh, an outcome that's relatively accurate based upon the current setup of the people on the field? I think for that, Natalie's a bad person to, to answer. Um, yeah, I, 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 think, I think we'll get there, especially if we have historical uh, data on teams and how we know they typically react to certain situations on the field. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is already happening on individual teams. We don't often get to know what individual teams are doing. It's proprietary information. Um, they don't always like to share it with the, with the researchers. <laughs> um, I also, um, this also brings up some conversations I've had with another professor here, Alex Gates, in uh, network analysis. And when you have certain um, uh, groups of players on the field, do they interact differently and adapt to situations differently than other groupings of players? And I think that is really interesting because I think one of the things we've kind of danced around in this conversation a bit is that sports has you know, a huge human psychology aspect and that we can have all the historical data and all the models we want, but humans are humans and they make decisions based on in the moment, you know, feelings and that might be who are their teammates on the field and who do they feel comfortable with, who do they kind of have this, you know, second sense about knowing that they're going to catch this ball even if it's not the play we talked about. Um, and I think that's some really interesting work to get into with, you know, Alex and his network analysis type thing in sports. Um, I was also thinking I was watching the basketball game last night and I think UVA held NC Central in the first half to like 29% shooting or something. It was somewhere around there. And I was thinking, I was like, wow, this is this would be really cool computer vision to know how much of that, because the announcers say UVA held, as if UVA blocked every single one of those shots. How much of that was, you know, UVA's defensive strategies versus how much of it was more of like a unforced error type issue? And like how does that look on the on the court when you put it into like a computer vision world? And I think those are some really cool questions that we'll be able to start answering that I think could really change how coaches, you know, think about the sports and how they set up strategies and who they put on the court and what combinations of players they put on the court to achieve certain outcomes. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the psychology, though, is detectable, isn't it? Are their latest aspects are detectable by computer vision, aren't they, Steve, or are they not? Uh, there are certainly attempts to detect psychology uh, using things like facial facial recognition and things like that. But I guess, you know, psychology is something that is more um, difficult for, you know, computers to process because uh, those are all very subjective, you know. And then in terms of training a, you know, an algorithm, um, how human psychology works, um, you know, all these data points are very subjective. Uh, meaning that, you know, it's very hard to find a sort of a deterministic rules uh, between like, oh, if, you know, somebody's face looks like this, this is this means anger. Or, you know, if somebody's you know face looks like this, this means oppression or something like that. I mean, it, it's very hard to define that, you know, linkage is kind of the challenge. So psychology is probably something that, um, you know, data science models are not particularly good at at the, at the current stage. But who knows? I mean, there are a lot of research going on uh, in terms of like analyzing the brain waves of people and then, you know, try to find some quali quantitative evidence of, you know, uh, human psychology and then try to incorporate that into uh, decision-making process in, uh, in sports science. Yeah. And so. then just add a helmet to the computer trying to read a facial recognition. That's a whole other challenge. Right, yeah, when right. half their face is obstructed by a mask. Yeah. yeah, but of course in basketball, you've got their full face. Yeah. And so in your example that you were just giving, yeah. you, you can actually detect, uh, I would think, uh, certain characteristics. But. I think so, yeah. it was. It's funny, when Steve was talking about pose estimation in the beginning, one of the first talks I went to about pose estimation was about basketball, and they were talking about how do they track the same player throughout the game, and the first one was, you know, the number is the most obvious. Like, it's usually very, you can at least see part of it, and the computer can figure out, oh, that's 21. The next thing that they said worked for their model was the nose features. And how, like, you know, how um, some people have such a different shaped nose and how the computer is like, oh, I can identify that person's nose to identify <laughs> them if they couldn't see the number. And so it's very close to a, a facial recognition between between athletes. Um, and the next would be the ear. No, I, yeah, no. maybe. I don't know. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Um, probably better than the arm. I'm sure all of the arms look alike to the computers. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to be some interesting avenues of uh, human psychology is there's a whole reason there's a whole field dedicated <laughs> to trying to understand human emotion and the mind yeah. um, and it's very we we talk about it all the time in sports um, well can you talk a little bit about what you think are the current really fascinating challenges that we have right now uh, yeah for from the research lens, um, I sometimes wear both hats of working with individual teams and also trying to think about these larger research questions. Um, first, it's, it, it's really getting all this data together. And I think a lot about how do we take, how do we go through this entire data science pipeline? And we'll use the, you know, the, the U-shaped pipeline. We're going you know, from sport back to the sport. And it's, you know, we're taking all of, how do we collect that data so it comes into our system really nicely? How do we then put all of those data points together? Because oftentimes, and this might be not the right answer for this podcast, is sometimes our best answers come from a really good query. Sometimes the answers we need the most. If we have that data really well designed and laid out, 
we can run a quick query and get most answers that we need quickly. Um, but that doesn't happen if all of your data isn't together and working seamlessly. And then, you know, there's also the challenge of how do you get video into those, we call them databases, um, is another challenge. Um, and then how do we then stream that back out to another human readable side for coaches? Because there are stakeholders, coaches, athletes, fans, um, and they're not necessarily gonna understand the sensor data or the camera data that we brought in or the medical data that we brought in. Um, and so I really think this, more of this like design problem of putting all our data in, making it work really well together and that scale so we can continually add that data in quickly and then being able to seamlessly put it out into reports, dashboards, fan engagement platforms um, is probably the thing I think about the most. And then that's on a kind of an individual sports side, but that leads to the larger research side of um, I've been trying and trying to get more data from other schools together. And the biggest issue is that no one's data is stored the same. Um, we all don't collect our data the same. So how do we create processes to still bring all of that data together? And we're definitely working towards it. Um, people don't like to share their sports data. Um, I always try to tell people that, especially in college sports where we have so much turnover, if I'm asking for data from two years ago, there's nothing I'm going to be able to predict competition-wise on your team this coming year. Um, and we're also looking at it from a health perspective, which usually gets people more engaged. But um, this is something that we've been talking about and working on at UVA for years, and we're still just like barely inching towards getting more of this data together to really solve the problem of how do we keep our college athletes healthy? Because many of these athletes don't go on to play professional. We just want them to be healthy, active humans in our population. And so how do we keep them that way in college sports? Right, yeah. right. Okay, that's great. Yeah, just to echo what uh, Natalie just said, I think uh, we have all this, you know, nowadays, this cool technologies to produce all sorts of interesting data. But when it comes to like collecting them and then making use of them wisely, uh, I think uh, we're still kind of behind, um, um, especially in terms of like collecting and, um, you know, integrating all this data. Um, you know, different teams use different uh, data collection methods, you know, different teams use different sensors and, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, how to kind of collect those data and then you know, uh, integrate them together for, um, you know, for some productive use um, is, I think, uh, a remaining challenge. Another thing I want to add is um, machine learning models and, you know, data science algorithms are getting more and more accurate. But on the flip side, uh, they're becoming, you know, more and more sophisticated to analyze. So in terms of, like, uh, analyzing the decision um, process of those data science models, uh, it's becoming, you know, more and more challenging, uh, meaning that, you know, we, let's say there's a, there's a machine learning model that can predict, uh, you know, the probability of somebody getting injured. But then, like, you know, the question is why, you know, what are the, the things that, you know, machine learning models saw uh, in the player's data that, you know, made it to predict certain probability of injury. Uh, like, we don't have a lot of, you know, uh, technology to uh, understand and visualize and explain what's happening inside of machine learning models. So I think, you know, that's another very important challenge because we need that kind of interpretation to, you know, to communicate with people. 
communicate with not necessarily data science. We need to communicate that, you know, the machine learning prediction to coaches, players, uh, and, and then other stakeholders, right? Mm -hmm. We need to clearly communicate that and then we need to have some human interpretable justification of, you know, why that machine learning model has made that prediction, you know, that sort of thing. So I think uh, that's another big challenge that, um, you know, we need to address. Yeah. Steve, it said something very important there. There, especially in the sports medicine side, there's still a lot of just experimental, causal things that we need to solve. And one of them, we um, so the sensors I was talking about that they wear between their shoulder blades, that's full body load or full body accelerometry. We don't exactly know what that means for a knee tendon. If you get 500 workload units, does that change? any of the structure of your knee tendon over time. And those aren't these big data problems, that's controlling player load and measuring tendon changes over time. Um, but it's very, those are very important pieces to this larger puzzle that can help us bring some interpretability to the machine learning. Um, that also hits on a point that we made earlier, uh, that the more human interpretable human interpretability we can put in those models, the more protected the athletes are from decisions being made without a lot of guidance from humans and just solely relying on computers to make those decisions for athletes. So let's remember this is, for in professional sports, this is their livelihood. In college sports, this is the potential to be their livelihood. And now with NIL, it is some of their livelihoods, really. Um, and so we can't make decisions just purely based on um, solely what a computer is telling us without some human interpretability for them. And I think all of our athletes, coaches, you know, deserve at least that much from us. Yeah, that's great. So I guess uh, to conclude, can you guys think of uh, applications outside of sports that some of the uh, techniques you've been working on sports analytics can be used for? Uh, I mean, yes, there's, I mean, human motion Everybody, every human moves in some capacity. Um, and so I think that in itself um, is interesting. Um, staying still in kind of the sports medicine or medicine realm, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, rehab throughout the lifespan, uh, having some kind of um, sensor or computer vision to look at those human motions is incredible, especially when we think about. Um, like remote therapy. Not everyone has access to high quality physical therapists in their hometowns. And so how can we use this technology to, you know, um, bring high quality rehab and physical activity to people who don't have direct access? Oh, no, I, I, I can think of a lot of, you know, applications outside of sports. Um, I think what Natalie just said, um, you know, rehabilitation and, you know, precision medicine, I think is going to be one um, particular direction where, you know, this can go. Um, what I can tell from what, what I can tell from my own experience, um, I, I know that, for example, U.S. Marine Corps is using this kind of uh, sports analytics methodologies to, you know, train their, you know, soldiers better and uh, things like that. Uh, I also know that, uh, you know, manufacturing industry uh, is nowadays uh, is paying a lot of attention to those repetitive use injuries uh, of the manufacturing workers. So like you, you lift a heavy object and then you repeat that motion, you know, uh, over and over again, or you lift your shoulder in a certain way to reach uh, to a part on a 
shelf and you know things like that um, and then there are like um, you know companies in the industry uh, who are developing computer vision and sensor technologies to monitor and uh, detect all this repetitive use of um, uh, of um, you know motions in um, uh, manufacturing uh, I also have a collaborator in the pediatrics department uh, at UVA who's using computer vision to uh, analyze the movement of infants and then there's an interesting tendency um, where you know uh, infants with the risk of cerebral palsy uh, tend to have very monotonic uh, repetitive movement uh, whereas normal babies tend to just move uh, in a various different ways. So uh, similar technology that is being used in sports industry could also be applied to automate the process of you know, uh, predicting the future risk of cerebral palsy and that sort of thing. So um, I, I can see you know, a lot of applications uh, like that outside of sports world could benefit from this um, you know, new technology. Yeah, I, I would second that. From what I've seen, the various techniques that have been used for elite athletes to, to uh, uh, measure performance uh, has direct applicability for normal people to uh, improve their physical uh, fitness and exercise uh, modes. So I think yeah. this is all good. And all of us have a sensor on us called our cell phone. That, <laughs> you know, it actually does pick up a lot of what we do every day. And a lot of people wear, you know, smart watches or have their own aura rings that give great HRV and can tell us a lot about how we ourselves are doing as humans. Yeah, you know, I recently came across this app um, which uh, analyzed my golf swing and it tells me, you know, why my swing sucks. <laughs> you know? uh, so I think, yes, uh, I think uh, I can see this, uh, all this high technology kind of becoming more, uh, how do I say, democratized, yeah. you know, and then, you know, a broader group of people can you know, start to benefit from those technologies, so which is uh, pretty exciting to right, me as well. Right, right. So when we do sports, we, we get full benefit out of it. Uh, that's yeah. the, that's the yeah. goal. Yeah. Which is our golf game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been wonderful. I've enjoyed talking to both of you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank it was you. fun. Thanks for checking out this week's episode. We'll be back soon with a new conversation. In the meantime, check out our previous episodes, which cover a wide range of subjects within the field of data science. And again, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at uvadatapoints at virginia.edu. We'll see you next time.